you'd like to open your Bibles, we're in Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 26. Lord, we now turn our attention to your word and to the strength, Father, that we draw from it, the truth that is contained here. Lord, we don't involve our minds with uh, great theology and we're not... Looking, Father, for something that's simply a a story. We're looking, Father, to hear from You. Lord Jesus, as You said, Your sheep hear Your voice. We want to hear Your voice. And we ask You to be our teacher of Your words that will not pass away. And Father, I believe, as as with all that we have studied, but especially uh, here in Jeremiah, we are, you are speaking in such a timely way to us and, and giving such encouragement for living in these last days. Even as we look at Judah and the last days that they had before being carried into captivity, so Father, we live in the last days before we are carried not into captivity, but home to be with You. And while we so look forward to that, and even confess that we have no idea what exactly that's going to be like other than what you tell us in the twinkling of an eye. While we look forward to it, we recognize that we have lives that we are supposed to be living right now. And tasks before us, Lord, as followers of Jesus. A role to play until you call us home or we pass away either one. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to equip and prepare and train up your saints for our daily lives, that we will live for you. And only your Holy Spirit can do that. So we pray, Spirit, teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude wrote in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It's one of my favorite verses. He who is able to make us stand in the presence of His glory. The question I want to ask you tonight, and it really is something we've been thinking about and thinking through in this whole study through Jeremiah, and that is how do we stand until then? How are we to stand in this world. There's plenty to stand for, and there's plenty to stand against. There's plenty of opposition. Opposition to the truth, opposition to the Word of God, opposition to the Lord God Himself. And as we open the Word tonight, we find Jeremiah, in these next three chapters, we find him standing opposed. We find him coming up against opposition. Now, to this point, we've recognized some of that in Jeremiah's writings. But now beginning with chapter 26 and literally running all the way up through about chapter 44, we're going to see many personal examples of Jeremiah carrying the banner 
of Jeremiah standing up, situations that he finds himself in are going to be uh, played out before us. We'll see a very personal uh, responsibility and, and action of the, of the prophet here. About chapter 45 through 51, then the Lord will turn his focus in Jeremiah to nine different judgments of nine Gentile nations. And then as we close out, chapter 52 is more of a kind of a supplement to the whole book. But from here through 44, we see Jeremiah at work and we see this interaction. We know he's faced opposition before. We just haven't seen it so much as we will beginning tonight. The first we're going to see is Jeremiah opposed by the priests and the prophets, the false prophets. And they're going to haul Jeremiah into court in chapter 26. Then in chapter 27, we'll see something interesting. God gives Jeremiah a visual prophecy, an illustrative sermon, if you will, that he is to walk out in front of all the people. It's a strange one. It's interesting. And then we're going to see the fallout of that in chapter 28 when he finds himself in the midst of a great debate. So that's kind of a a layout of where we're going tonight, asking the question again, how do we stand against opposition in this world? How do we stand until Jesus calls us home? By the time we're done tonight, I think the answer will be clear. Chapter 26, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come in to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them, do not omit a word. Jeremiah spoke this in 609 B.C. Does it sound familiar? Because we've already studied the entire text of this prophecy that God commanded Jeremiah to speak. We've already seen it. This is the temple address. The temple address we read back in Jeremiah chapter 7 about the first 20 verses where the Lord tells him exactly this. Stand in the court of the Lord's house. Speak to all the cities of Judah, all those who have come in to worship. And you may recall we looked at that, the temple address. The Lord told Jeremiah, give this address at the temple gate. Give this address to the churchgoers. Or in this day, their day, the temple goers. And give this address, why? Because the temple had become their idol. The people were looking to the temple to save them. The people were looking to the temple for some kind of resolution. And depending on whether the smoke was white or black, they would know. (laughs) As they look to the temple. (laughs) How do you know when something's your idol? How do you really know that something has become idolatrous in your life? The simple answer is when you trust in it to bring you success instead of trusting in the Lord. When you say, all my business has saved me. All my marriage has made my life right. Oh, my new position, that's what's made everything good. That's where my... No, that's become an idol. It is only when we look to the Lord. He is our success. He is our provision. He is all we need. We call it playing church. And that is when we show up in the building, but we're not looking to the Lord. And God graciously calls the people on it. Verse 3, He says, Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of their evil deeds. That, by the way, verse 3, is the whole purpose of evangelism. Perhaps. You speak the word of truth. You share about Jesus. 
perhaps someone will listen. Perhaps they will repent. Perhaps. Whether or not they do, and please understand my heart, whether or not a person listens is not my problem. Oh, I I feel it. I feel it on a Sunday when someone walks out the door and you know they haven't heard a thing. I feel that. But it's not mine to change. Only the Spirit of God can change a heart. Only the Spirit of the Lord can change a mind. But it is my responsibility to bring the whole Gospel. And as the Lord tells Jeremiah back in verse 2, do not omit a word. Don't leave anything out. Don't just tell the easy stuff. Tell the whole thing. Remember we talked about on Sunday, God puts it all on the table. He doesn't hide anything. He says, here's the deal. Here's your sin. Here's your need. Here's my grace. Here's my salvation. Here's the outcome if you reject that. I'm putting it all out here for you. And so we are called not to omit a single word. Perhaps they will listen. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 And so we present the gospel because perhaps they will listen and turn. What about if you know they're not listening? The answer to that is simple. Keep bringing the gospel. Perhaps they will. But they're not, Rick. Perhaps they will. Yeah, but I, I know they're not. Even then... You keep bringing it. Like Jeremiah, whose whole life was about bringing the Word of God, bringing the warning of God, though the people weren't listening, God told Jeremiah the people were not going to listen, but you are to keep bringing my Word. You don't stop. I think about, and it's a marvelous thing that God does, in the latter part of the tribulation, what I believe is the great tribulation, the last three and a half months where God is pouring out His wrath on this ungodly world, on a world that has rejected Christ. Revelation 14.6 says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Why is that so amazing? Because in the last part of the tribulation, no one's listening. Every heart at that point is hard. There is no repentance. Why send the angel at all, Lord? Perhaps. Perhaps. Though the world would turn its back on God, He will still send out His Word. Perhaps someone will listen. I think perhaps is another word for grace. The great perhaps of the Lord perhaps will turn. Now, of course, the people didn't listen to Jeremiah's temple address. They continued to believe the temple would save them. Verse 4, the Lord says to Jeremiah, says, And you will say to them, Thus says the Lord. If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh. And this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. And we've talked about this. You Bible students know Shiloh is the first place the tabernacle rested. For 150 years... The people came into the land. The book of Joshua tells us, I think it's chapter 5, but don't quote me on that. Joshua tells us that they came to Shiloh, and there the tabernacle rested with all of its implements. That's where the ministry happened. That's where the people gathered for corporate worship. They came to Shiloh. 
They worshiped the Lord there. The sacrifices happened there. The ministry of the priests took place at Shiloh. Today, Shiloh is an empty plateau. It's an interesting place. One of my favorite places to visit now in Israel. And if you go on the Israel tour, I will say that about every single stop. You just need to know. Shiloh is an empty plateau nestled in the hills of Samaria. It's a really interesting place. In 1050 BC, archaeologists have unearthed uh, information to tell us that Shiloh was wiped out. Dated to 1050, that makes sense. The Philistines did it. The Philistines who took the Ark of the Covenant in battle and then went on to wipe out Shiloh. And today, to stand on that mound, on that plateau amidst the rolling hills surrounding, it's a melancholy place to be. And yet, kind of exciting. There is something very unique about being there. It's, It's far away from the intensity of Jerusalem. Or the hustle and bustle of Tel Aviv. And yet it's just about a 20 minute, maybe half hour drive. But to step out of a car in the parking lot, make your way down and stand down in the area that we know is Shiloh, it's just a different place. And it's very serene and it's very peaceful. And it gives you a sense, at least it gave me a sense of something residual. As though something great were here, and of course I know that there was, but a residual feeling. Something was great here, but is now no more. My point is this. 23 years after Jeremiah gave this word, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount felt like Shiloh feels today. Desolate. Empty. Perhaps those who would walk upon the Temple Mount, there were not even any ruins left. It was completely razed. It was so bad, they weren't even sure exactly where the Temple was when they came back to the land. And to go walk on that place where the temple stood, I wonder if you would have that same sense. Something great was here. But now it's gone. That's the warning of the temple address. If you will turn, if you will repent, if you will come back to me, the Lord tells the people, then this won't happen. But if you don't, I will make Jerusalem, I will make the temple mount like Shiloh. But why, since we've already heard this in chapter 7, why is the introduction to the temple address here before us again? These first six verses, we just get the introduction. The rest of the temple address, if you want to read it, you've got to go back to chapter 7. Why is it repeated here? And the reason is Jeremiah is now giving us the context, the reason behind what happens in the rest of the chapter. This is the people's response to the temple address of chapter 7. Beginning in verse 7. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. When Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, in other words, he didn't omit a single word, we're told the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You must die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house will be like Shiloh, and this city will be desolate without inhabitant? All the people gathered about Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And when the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the entrance of the Lord and sat in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. Here's the deal. The gate wasn't just a gate. As was the case with many ancient cities, the gate was also the place of judgment. The gate was where the ruler of the city would sit. 
or the leaders or elders of the city would have a seat there and people would bring their problems to them. You would bring your case to the elder at the gate. And their decisions were made. And their rules were handed down. And so the gate was the court. The priests and the prophets were the prosecution. The officials who come up from the king's house because they hear all of this hubbub going on, they are judge and jury. And the defendant facing the death penalty is Jeremiah. And this is the situation he finds himself in. Why are they so upset? Why are they so angry? Because the temple became their idol. That's another way you know something is your idol when someone challenges you on it and you get defensive of it. Don't tell me my job isn't important. This is providing my livelihood. Don't you tell me that what I'm doing isn't the most important thing I can be doing right now. When we get defensive about issues in our lives, it's a sign that perhaps we've got an idol going on. The tendency that the people in Judah had about the temple is a similar tendency. It's a very human tendency. I call it architectural adoration. And it's where we look at a building built by human hands and we think there's something unique Something special about this building. Something that we have to protect as it even protects us. Even after the exiles return from Babylon, they're going to have this attitude about the temple. They'll build a new temple. Smaller than the first. Not as glorious as the first. Not until Herod takes over and begins to really you know, drum things up. But they still have this attitude about the temple. 500 years later, their attitude about the temple is part of what they used to condemn Jesus to death. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Remember that? And the Jews said to him at that time, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But John tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. And I think that was probably clear. Only they didn't choose to hear it that way. Later at Jesus' trial, those words of Jesus would be brought up as a false testimony against him. Matthew 26.61, the man stated, I am, he said that I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And they get all upset about Jesus and they parlay this attitude toward the temple into condemnation of our Lord and Savior and he ends up Crucified. Another man, some years later, was killed when he began to question the same attitude in the Jewish leadership. That man was Stephen. Stephen, in his marvelous address in Acts chapter 7, gets to about verse 48. He says, he says, The Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, quote, Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And then Stephen said, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. You know what that tells us? It tells us that elevating a religious edifice causes people to resist the Holy Spirit. The more emphasis we put on buildings and structures, the more it detracts from our reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Which is why the leaders here at the Bridge Fellowship are so absolutely committed that we keep faith at the forefront of our building. 
And that we don't allow the building to become this religious edifice. This place that we have to protect and care for and nurture and look after because it looks after us. Elevating a religious edifice causes people to resist the Holy Spirit. You know what the church is. The church is not a building. It's an organism. It is an organism of living stones. It's built of flesh and blood and spirit. Not cement, not wood, not steel. So verse 11, they're all upset with him about the temple address. And we're told the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people saying, A death sentence for this man. For he has prophesied against this city as you have heard in your hearing. Oh, even worse. Not only has he committed blasphemy against the temple, but he's committed treason against Jerusalem and the, and the kingdom of Judah. He's treasonous. He speaks against the city. Kill him. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people, verse 12, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you have heard. Now therefore, amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will change His mind about the misfortune which He has pronounced against you. I love this. Jeremiah uses the opportunity to keep preaching the message. He goes right back to the Gospel. He goes right back to the truth. He doesn't set up a defense for himself. The first words out of his mouth are, Repent. Because the condemnation here is not on me. It's on you. But as for me, verse 14, Behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. Only know for certain that if you put me to death... You will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants for truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. This is Jeremiah at his best. He is under the gun. He is threatened with death. He is facing his own death. And Feinberg puts it this way. He says, In the hour of trial, Jeremiah's courage and fidelity to God shone brightly. As for me... My life is in your hands. Do with me as you will. But know that the message is true. Know that the word I speak to you is the word of the Lord. He's facing his death. What would you say? What would you do? You've got the whole crowd riled up against you. You know, in your spirit, in your mind, you know God sent you to speak this word, but you're going to die for it. That's what Jeremiah is facing. What do you say in that moment? Venezuela's President Hugo Chavez died last week. I'm sure you heard this. He died in much pain, mouthing these final words, Please don't let me die. That's horrible. (laughs) I read that and I think for the first time ever felt sorry for Hugo Chavez. I really did. I thought this guy... He knows what's about to happen and he's scared to death. I don't want to be scared to death in the moment of my death. I don't want to be scared of death in the moment of my death. Should I die before the Lord raptures me? That's okay. I just go up in the rapture before the rest of you. You know? So to to live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul was absolutely right. Not to be afraid of, of death. Jeremiah's not afraid. Do with me as you will. I know I'm speaking the truth. I know I'm standing for the Lord here, but you've got the Hugo Chavez's of the world saying, please don't let me die. And then you've got the Apostle Paul's of the world 
2 Timothy 4.6 saying, The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That's Paul's heart and attitude. How about Jesus? On the cross, Luke 23.46, Jesus' last words, crying out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Having said this, He breathed His last. Not, please don't let me die, but Father, My life is in Your hands. Jeremiah is condemned to death, but he has the confidence of the Lord. I think the officials and the people could see that. I think they could see the truth in his eyes, in his voice, and in his confidence. Verse 16, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, No death sentence for this man! They changed their tune rather quickly. For he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And then some of the elders of the land, note this, they rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put Micah to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which had he had pronounced against them? But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. And that's as close as they got to repentance. Right there. The elders of the land said, Look, in Hezekiah's day, the prophet Micah stood up. Did he? Absolutely he did. This is a direct quote from the prophet Micah. That quote you see in verse 8, that's Micah chapter 3, verse 12. Micah the prophet, Micah of Moresheth, who came along in Hezekiah's day prophesying, preaching, saying the exact same thing as we see from this quote that Jeremiah is now preaching. Jerusalem will become ruins. This was prophesied a hundred years earlier. And who remembers it? The elders. The elders do. They offer Micah's prophecies. And by the way, this is a rare moment. In fact, I think it may be the only time, we can double check this, it may be the only time where in one of the books of prophecies, another book of prophecy is directly quoted. Jeremiah quotes Micah directly, word for word here. And as he does this, the elders, they grab hold of this verse. They offer it as legal precedence for not killing Jeremiah. We didn't kill Micah when he said the same thing. How can we kill Jeremiah for saying what we know Micah already said? And so it stays Jeremiah's execution. But who are these elders? Sometimes the Hebrew word for elder is used for a leader, a man in authority, someone who would sit in the city gate and pronounce judgment. In this case, most conservative scholars are agreed that these are just older men. Because they're not listed as the officials, they're listed separately. The officials are those who are in the seat of judgment. These are just some elders. These are older gentlemen. And the word means that just as well as it can mean a man in authority. It means someone who is older. Elders of the people. 
We're not talking about authority and position here. We're talking about age and experience. And in this case, they're these older, respected men who spoke out. And I point that out to say to every one of you senior saints among us, and you know who you are, do not be silent. Because the rest of us need to hear from you. We need to hear the voice of experience. We need to hear the wisdom that comes with age. We are not wise enough, those of us, you know, young people like myself, we are not (laughs) wise enough to always know the best direction. We don't have the experience, we don't have the history. These men stand up, these older guys, and they remember Micah. And they remember, and I'm speaking Jewish now, what Micah said. (laughs) They know, you should listen to him. Like you listen to your mother, you should listen to Micah. You know. And we need to hear from the senior saints. We have a culture that shuts down older people, that says, be quiet, you've done your time, go retire. We don't need to hear from you anymore. And I completely disagree. We need to hear. Proverbs 16.31 says, a gray head is a crown of glory. Our culture says, go out and get some dye and change that. (laughs) Don't let them see you gray, you know. The Bible calls it a crown of glory, and that's not just poking fun. That's a literal word. It's a crown of glory. There's something special about that in the eyes of the Lord. He says, in it is found the way of righteousness. Why? Because of experience. Proverbs 20, verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Now you might say, I'd rather have the strength. Listen, in God's economy... The gray hair is better. In God's economy, the strength of the young man only gets him into trouble. It's when we get to the point in our lives that we realize our strength is the Lord. And that typically comes around the time we start to get some gray hairs. In God's economy, gang, senior saints, you have a righteous wisdom that comes by the precedence of the Word. Lifted up as precedence before the rest of the fellowship, before the rest of the church, Draw us back to the Word. That is a call to the senior saints among us. Verse 20. Verse 20 going on, Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. Uriah, the son of Shimeiah, from Kiriath-Jerim, and he prophesied against this city and against this land, words similar to all those of Jeremiah. When King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and the officials heard his words, then the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard, and he was afraid, and he fled, and he went to Egypt. And then King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. Elnatan, the son of Achbor, and certain men with him went into Egypt, and they brought Uriah from Egypt, and they led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Now these verses, verse 20 through 23, probably weren't spoken in the moment there. Some try to ascribe this to the elders or ascribe this to others, and it's, it doesn't seem to fit there. It seems, reads as though perhaps it was added in by Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit. One way or another, the Spirit wanted this in here. But I want you to think about this. It's interesting that it would sit here in contrast, Jeremiah, for speaking the truth, for speaking the word against Jerusalem and against Judah, is now spared. He is not killed. But this prophet, Uriah, that we've never heard about before, and you will never hear about again, 
This is the only place in the entire Bible that talks about a prophet named Uriah. We don't know who he is or, or where he lived. We know what he prophesied. And we know he was killed for it. So why place this right here after Jeremiah's exoneration? I think, it's just Rick's opinion, I think it's here to remind us that our lives are in his hands. Jeremiah is spared. Uriah was not. Our lives are in his hands. It could have gone any way for Jeremiah. Uriah's preaching was the same thing. Both prophets were faithful to the message. One lives, one dies. And both, by the way, in the days of Jehoiakim. Jeremiah got in trouble right here. We see at the beginning of the chapter that Jehoiakim was was king at the time. Uriah gets slain by the same king. Jeremiah does not. One is let off. The other one's martyred. I believe that this is here because Jeremiah recognizing the only reason that he is freed of the charges was that God intervened. That the Lord protected him. Jeremiah's advocate for the defense wasn't his clever words or response. His advocate for the defense was the Lord. And you can't thwart the will of the Lord. Is your advocate for defense the Lord? He's my advocate. 1 John 2.1 says, Little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So hallelujah, Jeremiah is saved. He's let off. They allow him to continue his prophesying. And now we jump forward to about 593 B.C. Again, chapter 26 took place in 609 B.C. And now we have a story that takes place in 593 B.C. Follow this through. Verse 1. The beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Okay, pause right there. Who's reading out of a King James or a New King James? Alright, what king is listed in verse 1? Jehoiakim. Well, the NASB says Zedekiah. Someone's right and someone's wrong. And I just like to point out when my Bible is right. (laughs) A couple things to note here in verse 1. First of all, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. Well, the beginning there, that phrase is important to note. It's early in the reign of Zedekiah. This is Zedekiah. I'll tell you why in just a second. But it's not just in the beginning of the reign. We're not talking about at his coronation. We're not even talking about the first year. We're talking about early in the reign. How do we know that? Because in the next chapter, verse 1 of chapter 28, look at that. It says, Now in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month. So this is actually the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign. Still considered in the beginning, kind of like when you say, I'm in my early 30s, or I'm in my early 40s, or I'm in my early 50s. I'm in the beginning of my... I'm not in any of those. I'm in my late 40s, but be that as it may, you come back to verse 1, in the beginning, early in the reign of Zedekiah. So we know that this, we know his reign began in 597. We know it's four years later. That's how we know it's 593. Okay, so there's some confidence there that this happens in 593. The second thing to note, again, the King James Version and the New King James read in chapter 27, verse 1, Jehoiakim and not Zedekiah. And the King James, in this instance, is wrong. 
There are Hebrew manuscripts out there where the name written in Hebrew is Jehoiakim. And there are Hebrew manuscripts out there, ancient manuscripts that read Zedekiah. So what's the issue? It's a scribal error. There's a scribal error in the scriptures? In this case, there must be. Now I'm pointing this out for a specific reason. Watch how we know, here's how we know, that it's Zedekiah and not Jehoiakim. Donna, in verse 3, what's the name of the king listed at the end of verse 3? Zedekiah. Oh, so in verse 3, Jeremiah has just been told to send word to the king of Edom and Moab and Ammon and Tyre and Zidon by the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Well, they wouldn't be coming to Zedekiah, king of Judah, if Jehoiakim was king, because Jehoiakim precedes Zedekiah. Right? Check down in verse 12. It says, I spoke words like all these to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Did you say that in the King James? Yep. So we're still with Zedekiah here. You go further down in verse 20. And you see that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take certain things. When he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. So this talks about Nebuchadnezzar taking Jeconiah, who is Jehoiakim's son, into Babylon. So it can't be during the reign of Jehoiakim because this is when Jeconiah, after, it's after Jeconiah was taken. Now you're following me okay here. Okay. One more proof is over in chapter 28, verse 1, in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. So what happens in chapter 27 happens in chapter 28. It's the same year and it's the reign of Zedekiah, not Jehoiakim. This is one place in your King James or New King James Bible you can just line through and write in the correct name. I find this fascinating because I have been one to say in the past, every word is inspired. And every word of Scripture is true and is trustworthy and God doesn't make mistakes. However, obviously a scribe did. Someone along the way is writing down and and they just got so confused tracking Jeremiah that they wrote Jehoiakim, which is the king mentioned in chapter 26, and they wrote Jehoiakim in certain Hebrew manuscripts rather than Zedekiah, which is the actual. I point this out and I love this because I know that the Lord saw that scribal error coming. And so what does he do in verse 3, 12, 20, and chapter 28, verse 1? He makes sure we know it's Zedekiah. Okay? Some moron miswrote it, but it's Zedekiah. God is right on top of it. Listen, he knows how to keep his word. And so he keeps it true. Understanding that, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. And send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon. By the way, Edom, Moab, Ammon is Jordan Jordan today. And to the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon, which is Lebanon today, by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, the king of Judah. So what's going on here is what I would call an illustrative sermon. In a very visual way, God says, Jeremiah, I want you to take a wooden harness and straps and strap it on your shoulders. I want you to make a yoke like an animal would carry. And it's possible from the reading that Jeremiah also was to make additional yokes and mail them off to all these kings in the area 
Of course, you know when you mail off a gift like that, what the card has to read that goes with it, the yoke's on you. (laughs) A little yoke for you. Don't mean to burden you. Let's plow ahead. Okay, verse 4, continuing, says, Command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. What's he getting at? The rule of this world is my choice. The leaders of this world, those who rise up in power, I've put them there. They're my choice. This is my decision. Verse 6, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until... The time of his own land comes, and then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. It will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. But as for you, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you, saying you will not serve the king of Babylon. See, it wasn't just in Judah. Ammon and Moab and Edom and Tyre and Sidon, all of their soothsayers, all of their magicians were all saying, Babylon's not going to conquer. We will not serve Nebuchadnezzar. Stand and fight. There was great nationalistic pride in these smaller nations as Babylon was gaining strength. And the Lord says, not just to the false prophets of Judah, but to all the guys, you're lying. He says it in the next verse, they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. Verse 11, but the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord, and they will till it and dwell in it. Prophecy of the yoke. And in this prophecy, and it's fascinating, and I love when when God gets visual like this. Jeremiah isn't just giving this as a word. He's walking it out. He is now wearing a yoke. Can't be comfortable. Strapped on with the leather straps, wood across his neck, and he's walking around Jerusalem going, I'm telling you, God says, if we'll do this, we'll be okay. (laughs) If we will put ourselves under the yoke of the king of Babylon, just like this yoke, This is what we need to do and we will be alright. The yoke may be heavy and oppressive and burdensome, but accept it. And God says you can remain on your land and till your soil. Christians have for centuries labored under heavy-handed governments. Long before America began to feel some of the growing pains and maybe aging pains, I don't know, that we're feeling right now as a country. Christians before us struggled under great oppression. Right now, in this world, brothers and sisters of ours in Christ are struggling under great oppression. The yoke is heavy. And Jesus never guaranteed His followers 
would produce prosperity. He never guaranteed our lives would be as easy as most of our lives here in America have been. He didn't say that's the way it will be. What he promises is this. Regardless of the oppression of a nation, regardless of how heavy the yoke may be, we as his followers will continue to have fruitful labor. We will till the ground. As brothers and sisters are tilling the ground right now in China, and people are getting saved. As brothers and sisters are tilling the ground in the Arabic, in the Muslim world right now, and people are getting saved, and the oppression's heavy. Don't equate our freedom in America with the universal blessing of God. It may get oppressive here. And if it does, continue to follow Jesus and we will still till this soil. We will still be fruitful for the Lord. He says in John 15:5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him and flies the flag... He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. My Father is glorified by this, John 15, 8, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples and it has nothing to do with the land on which we live or the government that's in charge. Nothing to do with it at all. We are connected to Jesus. Till the soil. Till the soil. Now, Jeremiah carries the yoke and the message to Zedekiah. Verse 12. I spoke words like these to Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword and famine and pestilence as the Lord has spoken to this nation or to that nation which will not serve the king of Babylon? So do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you saying, You will not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They prophesy falsely in my name in order that I might drive you out and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. Then I spoke to the priests and to all this people. This is Jeremiah speaking. He took this message to Zedekiah. He's still wearing the yoke, gang. Still got it on his shoulders. Now he turns to the priests and the people. And it says, thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. What does he mean, the vessels of the Lord's house? Second Chronicles 36, verses 7-10. through 10, Recounts Nebuchadnezzar taking the holy vessels out of the temple. The cups and the dishes and the spoons and the the different implements for the work in the temple, those golden vessels, he takes them out during the reigns of Jehoiakim and Jeconiah. He takes them off to Babylon. But the false prophecy that was trending in those final days, those days of national distress, was that everything's going to be fine. All will soon be returned. The exiles who are there right now, remember this happened in waves, those exiles who have already gone into Babylon, they're going to come back We're going to get them back. We're going to get our stuff back. Everything's going to be just fine. It's going to happen imminently. And it was a lie. It was an absolute lie. But there were prophets saying this very thing, as we will see in chapter 28. Verse 17, he says, Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? 
There is a burden here. You can either put yourself under the burden of the king of Babylon and live, or you can fight for your freedom and die. And the point is, for the people of Judah, and I believe for us, is God's burdens are always better than man's freedoms. What we think is freedom. What we think is our right to do this or that or the other. I would rather place myself under the yoke of God. I would rather be under the burden of the Lord, whatever He says, because we're told in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. There are two yokes. There's a yoke of slavery and there's a yoke of freedom. But they don't look like what we think they look like. The true yoke of freedom in the Lord may in this life be heavy. It may seem oppressive. But if you're walking in the Spirit of the Lord, you're free. You are truly free. If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Not if the country makes you free. And I'm not preaching against the freedoms we hold dear in America. I do hold those freedoms dear. But we worry as we see them being taken away one at a time. As we see laws changing and morality set aside. And Christians throughout America, we're saying, I can't believe this. I don't know what we're going to do. We're losing our freedom. No, we're not. Because it's the Son who makes us free. Not the United States government. Not the Constitution. It's Jesus. And the encouragement in that is no matter what happens in any country in which we live, our freedom is in Christ. And to not be subject to a yoke of slavery is to not go back and use human means and human methods. We walk with the Spirit of the Lord. And by the way, the best yoke of all is the one that binds me to Him. It was Jesus who said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29. So verse 18. But if they are prophets, Jeremiah continues, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now entreat the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, may not go to Babylon. If these prophets are right, have them pray that the rest of the vessels that are here stay here. And we'll see what happens. That's what he's getting at. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the stands, concerning the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, that is the temple, and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They will be carried to Babylon. And they will be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. In other words, everything must go. This is God's everything must go sale. All right? The temple will be emptied out. Everything must go, even Yaquim and Boaz. they got to go too. Who are they? The pillars. The pillars, Yaquim and Boaz. He specifically mentions in verse 19, the pillars must go. Well, that's interesting. Standards in the front of the temple, those two massive Bronze pillars, solid bronze pillars, according to 1 Kings 7, 15 through 21, 
27 feet high, 16 feet around. And these two so-called vessels were the only two things in the entire temple that were given names. Yakin and Boaz. Yakin means he shall establish. Boaz means in it is strength. And Jeremiah prophesies, even these will go. In other words, the temple's coming down. The pillars are gone. Everything must go until the day, the Lord says, that I visit them in Babylon. And we know exactly what day that was. Daniel chapter 5. It's a great story. I'm not going to read it to you right now, but it tells the story of God's visitation in the court of a buffoon. Belshazzar who is acting king. His father's off, we believe, at that time, fighting in wars. And so Belshazzar, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, is in charge, and he has a great feast and calls all the nobles in, and they're getting drunk, and he says, Hey, let's get those gold vessels from that Jewish temple in here, and let's drink out of those. And they bring the vessels in, and guess who shows up to the party? Just the hand of the Lord. That's all he sends, it's just his hand. I love it. The hand appears and begins to write on the wall. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be taken and handed over to another. And that night, on the night of God's visitation, Belshazzar is killed. Babylon falls. Darius becomes the king. And quickly after that, after that event, then the vessels, all that were in the temple, will go back to Jerusalem as God promised. Jeremiah is spot on. How do you know a prophet is a legitimate prophet? They tell the truth. And what they prophesy comes true. And by the way, the pillars would be returned. Yaquin and Boaz. He shall establish, and in it is strength. And by the way, Boaz doesn't mean in him is strength. It literally means in it is strength. He shall establish, and in it is strength. In what? In that which God establishes. God establishes something in which there is strength. Colossians 2 verse 6 tells us, Therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. Just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The strength was not in Yaquin or Boaz. The strength was not in the temple. The strength was in that which God had established. What is that? Faith in Him. Trust in Him. He establishes our confidence. And He provides our strength. The day is coming when God will visit those established in the faith. And whatever be our oppression in this world, He will take us home. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Amen to that. Chapter 28, verse 1. In the same year, so we're still in 593 B.C., in the beginning, or in the early, early in the reign, of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month. Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gabeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, 
I am going to bring to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. Listen, don't ever timestamp something unless you know it's from the Lord. Right? Jeremiah would say 70 years of captivity, and truly 70 years of, of captivity it was. But this guy says two years. He is sticking his neck out. This Hananiah, I think he was caught up in celebrity. I think he was excited. The people were listening to him. He had a platform, and so he blurts this out. In two years, verse 4, he goes on and says, I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. You see what he's doing? Jeremiah is still wandering around Jerusalem like this. Still declaring the prophecy of the yoke when Hananiah stands up and says, Thus says the Lord, I've broken the yoke. He stands in opposition to Jeremiah. And suddenly we have the first person example here of the kind of bogus, flimsy, peaceful, easy-feeling prophecy that was going on. You know, the, the guys who are just wanting everybody to get along and just, everything's going to be cool, it's all going to be fine, no worries, it's going to be great. This is a guy who drives a Prius, you know, and he's just saying, he's got a coexist bumper sticker, you know, that's what. And what does Jeremiah do? Oh, he lays into him, right? That's what I hope he does. I'm watching the movie, I'm like, oh, stand up, Jeremiah. Take that yoke off your shoulders and bash in his coexist sticker. That's what I want you to do here. Get him! Stand against him! Wave the sign, Jeremiah! Verse 5, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests, the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord, and the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen! Huh? May the Lord do so! May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. This guy was preaching a message directly opposed to Jeremiah's message. Obviously. Why doesn't he lay out this charlatan flat? Why doesn't he stand against him? And I think part of the reason may be because Jeremiah's amen is deeply rooted in his love for his people. He he hears Hananiah preach this so-called prophecy. Now, he knows it's not legitimate. But I'll tell you what, it sure does sound good. The same as when I hear someone say, as I heard on Sunday, America is going to rise. America, so some prophets, so-called, are saying today, is going to experience great prosperity once again, more than we ever have seen before. I'd love to see that happen. I would love that. Amen. You know, Lord, bless America. God bless the country. Raise it up again to Your glory. I would love to see that. Oh, that it were true. And I don't know about America, but of course Jeremiah would love to see his people saved. He would love to see the exiles returned. He would love to see the vessels of the Lord's house returned. Jeremiah didn't preach gloom and doom for the fun of it. And by the way, brothers and sisters, neither should we. And I am the first to confess that I have. You could probably go back a few years and hear it on a recording somewhere, you know. 
You start to talk about the tribulation. You start to talk about what's going to happen to those rebels. <laughs> God's going to get them, you know? And that's a wrong heart. And that's a wrong attitude. Our heart should not be opposed to the sinful and rebellious of this world. It should be hearts of love saying, Amen, Lord, save them. We want to see people saved. Of course that's the desire of our heart. Of course that's what we want. What Jeremiah preached, he didn't preach for fun. He preached because it was truth. So here comes Hananiah. And he's preaching a message of opposition. And Jeremiah is not threatened. In fact, I think he shows great spiritual maturity in how he handles this whole thing. His confidence, it's in the Lord. It's in His Word. And you know... Taking a little aside from this, sometimes things are preached in the name of the Lord that are different than my perspective. Or slightly askew from my theology. But if they're preached in the name of the Lord, I think my responsibility to that is to say, unless it is directly contradictory to Scripture, if it's a different theological take, I think maybe what we have to do is say, you know, Amen. Lord, may Your will be done. May Your Word be fulfilled as you spoke it, not as I understand it. As much as we want to understand it correctly, obviously we do. But if anything that I've preached here is wrong, Amen. Let His Word stand. Not mine. And not even my take. And so I think there's wisdom in this that that Jeremiah, his first response is, Amen. You know what? Amen. And he shows some respect for Hananiah because he's in the presence, you know here, of the people and, and all the priests. And so he doesn't immediately counter him. But he does turn a little bit on him here in verse 7. He says, Yet, hear now this word, (laughs) which I am about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. And subtly, I think Jeremiah may be referring back to Micah, and referring back to some of the earlier Hebrew prophets who did prophesy the destruction that Jeremiah has been talking about. And so what Jeremiah does right off the bat, he reviews the ancient prophecies. Kind of brings them to light. Legitimate prophets before us, Hananiah, before you and before me, well, they've, they've given a different word than the one you're giving right now. So we probably ought to take that into account. In other words, what does the word already say? What does the word already tell us? I read today a prophecy online. It was just, just for fun. I just Googled American Prophecies 2013. See what would come up. See what people are coming up with. And there are some very strange ones out there. Very strange. And there's one that, that talks about the church getting greater and greater and more powerful. And actually the church becoming more prosperous than any organization in the history of the world. And stronger and greater until Jesus comes. Which doesn't jive with Bible prophecy which says we will have little strength. Revelation 3, talking about the church of Philadelphia. You have a little strength, but you have not caved in. You've stood strong. Anyway, review the ancient prophecies. What does the word say? He goes on and says, the prophet, verse 9, who prophesies of peace, um, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. He's being wise and discerning. He does three things. He reviews the ancient prophecies. He registers the accomplished prophecies. 
In other words, he brings to light the prophet is proven true by his prophecies coming true. And Hananiah, you're prophesying peace. And you're saying in two years it's all going to be good. So we'll see. That's all we need is two years, right? And we will see if you are legit in what you're saying. Has the prophet been proved true? Check the prophet's track record. I think we can do that today. Those who would rise up and call themselves prophets, and you go, are they? That legit? Because we know that in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit on all people, and they will prophesy. So we should expect people to prophesy in the last days, right? How do you know if they're legit? You check the prophecies for error. You test the prophecies that we talked about Sunday against the Word. You look at the prophet's track record, and this is really important because we Americans have very short memory. Someone comes up with a prophecy, and people go, oh, that's great, not recognizing that five years ago the same guy gave a prophecy that was not fulfilled. And the Bible says if he gave a prophecy five years ago that, came, that did not come true, don't believe him now. That's the test. Deuteronomy 18.20, the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. We need to overcome our short memories and look back and say, what's the track record? What has this guy preached before? And is this legitimate now? Look at what he said earlier. Hananiah is not amused. And his reaction is, well, it looks a little physical. Verse 10. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. One more thing Jeremiah does here I think is just brilliant and it shows absolute calm and presence of the Spirit in his mind. He walks away. Now, the Bible gives this to us in a very cut and dried way, but reading into it, how does he get this yoke off of Jeremiah's neck? He didn't say, hey, can I have that for a moment? And even if he had, once he got a hold of the yoke, he smashes it. Hey, that's Jeremiah's, dude. It's not very nice. Maybe he's going to use that for his you know, animals later. He smashes this thing. There's this, I don't know, this agitation. The third thing, Jeremiah not only reviews the ancient prophecies, registers the accomplished prophecies, he recognizes an agitated prophet. <laughs> he sees this guy as being a possible problem, and what does the Bible tell us Jeremiah does? He walks away. He doesn't engage. There in front of all the people... He could have stood up. He knew the truth. He doesn't. And it reminds me that when someone is gearing up for a fierce debate, when tempers begin to flare, it tends to reveal something under the surface. My dad taught me that when I was a kid. Rick, why are you getting all defensive if you're telling me the truth? Oh, I'm not defensive. (laughs) That's how you hide a lie. You try to scare the person. You get angry. Hananiah, he's getting angry. The Bible says, be angry. It's okay, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't sit and seethe in it. And do not give the devil an opportunity. One of the greatest ways to give the devil an opportunity in our lives is to allow your anger to continue. To sit in it. 
you're opening the door for Satan to work. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus came into the temple. You know the story. And He saw what they were doing to His Father's house. And But one of the Gospel writers tells us, and then He went away. Spent the night in Bethany, came back the next day, and with reason and authority, cleared the temple. He didn't lose His temper. He came back in righteous anger, driving out the sin. The Bible tells us, James 1.19, everybody must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We're just not going to get there when we're angry. Hananiah was apparently not amused by Jeremiah's yoke. He wasn't amused. So, Jeremiah walks away. And Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's a great word. Just be at peace. If you see it starting to get contentious, walk away. Verse 12 The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I have also given him the beasts of the field. Well, then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah. By the way, note this one other thing. Apparently no one else is around. He goes to Hananiah privately. The other debate was a big public thing. Jeremiah now pulls Hananiah aside after the Lord says, I want you to go talk to him. Which is what happens with us. Jesus says, I want you to go talk to the person. You got a problem with a brother? You got a problem with a sister? I want you to go talk to them. Not in front of everybody. Don't make a big to do. Don't shame them. Go talk to them. So we have Hananiah, here we have Jeremiah one on one with Hananiah speaking this word, but it's a serious word. Listen, verse 15. Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. And Jeremiah notes in his prophecy, So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. Three months later, he's gone. In both cases tonight, Jeremiah's defense in court and his debate with Hananiah Who vindicated the prophet? The Lord did. God is Jeremiah's vindication. As Isaiah the prophet once wrote, Isaiah 50 verse 7, The Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. By the way, this is the Spirit of Christ speaking this. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up for each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw to me. Now you can close your Bibles. I want to give you a final principle here that I think runs through the whole thing. All that we've seen tonight with Jeremiah and these circumstances he found himself in. And I believe that this principle powerfully applies to the days in which we live. Days of opposition. Days when Christians feel more and more like we're being opposed 
in the courtrooms, that we're being opposed by our media, that we're being opposed in the square, in the marketplace. What do we do? How do we stand in this world? When studying Jeremiah, and I shared this with Les earlier, I found over the last few weeks my back getting up a bit. I, I found kind of myself slipping into Jeremiah's position a little bit. I don't know if you have, where you kind of go, yeah, yeah, I'm mean, going to preach condemnation too. I'm, <laughs> you know, everyone was against Jeremiah, everyone's against me. Christians, let's not get that mentality. Let's be careful not to suddenly become martyrs and to take a position of opposition. As Jesus' people, and I've seen this, and I've done this, sometimes we think because we're Jesus' people, we have to be contentious. Not with each other, but man, we got to stand in contention with the world. we got to make the world know the truth. And we do. We need to speak the truth. We need to fly our flags. We need to lift our banners high. We need to hold our placards up and go to the marches. And we need to protest. Because we're Christians. Hey, protest because you're an American. That's fine. But as followers of Jesus Christ, what do we see in Jeremiah here? He doesn't take a position of opposition. He takes a position of submission. He submits himself unto the Lord. He puts on the yoke. He bears the yoke. He walks under that oppression. He accepts it. He tells his countrymen, look, even if we are to be oppressed by Nebuchadnezzar, this is the will of the Lord. So let's accept his will and till the ground. Let's be about Jesus and not so much about politics. And I think this is such an important word to understand. We are called to take the position of submission. Not to the world, but to the Lord. Don't stand opposed to the world. Stand submitted to the Lord. Let's stand up right now. Standing submitted to the Lord. I'm going to read to you once again the two verses that we began with tonight. I'll pray and we'll be done for the evening. Jude 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And Lord, we stand before You tonight praying that You will teach us how to stand in submission to Jesus Christ with great joy and great confidence, with a willingness, Lord, to live in this country even if oppression should come, even if burdens should be placed upon us, that we might live submitted first and foremost to You, knowing, Lord, You are our vindication. You are our advocate. You are the one who debates before us. You are our shield and our very great reward. And so our faith and our confidence is in You. Lord, I pray, until the day we stand before You in Your presence with great glory, that we might stand here submitted to You as simple followers of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray tonight. Amen. Amen.